You're listening to a Times Higher Education podcast. Hello and welcome to the Times Higher Education podcast powered by Campus, THE's free digital platform full of insights and peer-to-peer advice for academics and higher education staff around the world. You can find out more at timeshighereducation.com forward slash campus. I'm Sarah Custer, the editor of Campus and your host. If you're a new listener, welcome. And if you've been with us for a while, welcome back and happy 2024 to all. January, named after the two-faced Roman god Janus, is the month of looking forward and looking back, of change and new beginnings. And today's guest speaks with us about his experience of both, in terms of his career, the relationship between the arts and the sciences, and the state of U.S. government funding for science and technology research. Mike Ibba is the Dean of Schmidt College of Science and Technology at Chapman University in California, where he's been since 2020, after spending nearly 20 years at The Ohio State University. In this episode, he tells us about making that transition from a large, publicly funded R1 institution to a small, private R2 university, and why he thinks Chapman's decision to change its philosophy department and move it into the College of Science and Technology makes sense. Mike has also thought deeply about mentorship and says that he wants training the next generation of scientists to be his lasting legacy. But he is concerned that historically low government funding for science and technology isn't covering the rising cost of science. Thanks to Chapman University, our sponsor for today's episode. Mike, welcome to the Times Higher Education podcast. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for inviting me. I'm looking forward to it. So, Mike, uh, you've been at Chapman University for just over three years now. Um, Chapman, for those of you who don't know, is a small private R2 institution in California where, Mike, you are the dean of Schmidt College of Science and Technology. But before that, you were working at The Ohio State University as the uh, chair, professor and chair in the Department of Microbiology. Uh, Ohio State University obviously being a large publicly funded R1 institution. What's been the biggest change for you in that switch from such a stark contrast in institution types? Um, well, it was so to give you some context, I moved in the middle of the pandemic in July 2020. So I got I got to see how a large institution versus a small institution responded in that situation mm-hmm. and there was a couple of things that you know we we did things at scale at our highest state as we had to to deal with a huge number of faculty and students and, and staff but when I came here what I saw was that there were a couple of things that really struck me almost immediately one was that I had much shorter um barriers or much shorter lines of communication to different people high up in administration it at a higher state naturally enough there are a lot of layers i i was there for 19 years i spoke to one president never another president once wow um, i spoke to a couple of provosts but not much well i was here i know i was a dean now but i spent a lot of we spent a lot of time working as a larger collective group of leadership which i really enjoyed I liked and what also struck me was that as a private institution with it's a predominantly undergraduate institution everything was student-centric everything about the mission was 
how we saw the students through this through the through the pandemic um how we maintained their education how we maintained their outcomes so that they did not become the the pandemic generation who got less out of their education so to me it was that focus and one someone who's now on my leadership team he said to me not long after i got here if you want to get people to do things at chapman frame it in terms of what it does for undergraduates and there was a certain amount of that at Ohio State, but here it it drives the bus. It's completely mm. different in that way. Mm. I think I think it's part of it. Also, mm. because Ohio State is a large land grant, it had a lot of different missions in the state. Sure. Whereas our our goal is to serve our undergraduate population. Mm-hmm. On that point about uh, your undergraduate population. Um, On your website, you say that undergraduates will start research on day one on the campus. Tell us how that works. Okay, so I've always been interested by this, both as a a faculty member and as as a parent. So if you take your children to visit, and I and I hear people coming around campus here, Everybody tells every student who ever goes through a science department or a science college or a prospective student and the parents, your children can start research the day they arrive on campus. We just, everybody says that on every tour I've ever been on or or heard. It's not always that easy to to achieve that. Mm -hmm. And so when I came and when I interviewed, I was very curious about how this was done at Chapman, where there's this much bigger influence. Uh, emphasis rather on undergraduate education and it's not just that like anywhere students can go into research labs and work with faculty from the start it's because there's this program that both our all of our students and all of the engineering students do as freshmen called the grand challenges initiative and this is a program where they learn that ultimately they'll work in teams of four to six to address scientific problems of their choosing but they spend the first part of their time as freshmen learning what research means what how to work in teams how to identify research problems how to research research problems so and it's not just because this is going to thrust them into research it's because it provides them with i think what i what i've seen is a great skill set to be science students because it stops them just being science students in the who go to the classroom learn what they're told from a textbook our students i think what i've been really impressed by is they're more questioning they're more research driven in that way they'll we teach them how to ask research questions so it's a more holistic view of research it's not research equals going to a lab i'm a biochemist picking up a pipette and doing some experiments some assays on day one it's about getting into a research mindset because we don't we have all sorts of different disciplines in the college, but it's about getting students up to speed as researchers, because if they're STEM students, research is part of everything they're going to learn in class in class has come out of research. So if they understand how research works, we think they'll learn better as well. So is that is that why that you there is such an emphasis and such a, a structural organization with the Grand Challenges initiative around this is that this is a, this is something that they're going to need to learn how to do anyway. So let's just get them started yeah. realistically on it. You know, and it, it it builds a 
I think it builds a skill set that I I know when I was chair of microbiology at Ohio State, we were always trying to figure out how to get parts of this skill set into a student's curriculum because there wasn't much room. We didn't have other places to do it. They had lots of GE requirements. This way, we put this up front. I mean, we're not alone in doing this. We've, I think the way it's been implemented here has been has been fantastic. But other schools have had programs like this as well for freshmen. And it's quite interdisciplinary, isn't it? In terms of the yeah. the backgrounds, yeah. the disciplinary backgrounds of the students working on these challenges. Yeah. And so it's not, so some schools use this very much as a, a training and then to help, to help accelerate undergraduates getting into research labs because they can do specializations as they go through their versions of the Grand Challenges Initiative. We don't do that. Because, because as you say, it crosses many disciplines mm -hmm. and we focus more on the on the broader skill sets and outcomes for the students. Mm -hmm. At Chapman, um, there was a decision that was made recently to move philosophy into your college, the College of Science and Technology. Was that your decision? No, this was, uh, so there were a lot of different factors in this. So one of the driving factors was that we have a, we have a strong presence in in interdisciplinary air research areas that include philosophy. So our our president is a mathematician and a philosopher. Um, we have people jointly appointed in math and philosophy. And we have a lot of people in quantum working in quantum fundamentals who are physicists who also collaborate with philosophers. And so we set we were setting up and this had started before I came and I helped kind of see it over the line, a math, physics and philosophy, an interdisciplinary doctoral program. And so it made sense because our philosophy program is, is not the scale of some large R1s. It's more focused. It's not exclusively these areas, but a lot of it is these interdisciplinary fields that cross over with the site, with the more traditional sciences. And all we're really doing as someone pointed out is, going back to where philosophy used to be when there was all this overlap. So that's what drove it. But it also, it's starting, there's a lot of interest in philosophy in other parts of STEM as well. So what really got me on board was starting to think about and talk to people. So for example, when this happened, it's when there was a lot of talk at some social media companies that you had highly trained data scientists who didn't had never been trained in morals and ethics mm -hmm. this issue of what you do with personal data sets so that came up then in in biology you're at this point where we have so much data that philosoph the philosophy of science dictates how you ask questions of this data how you drive technology do you drive it for, for economic gain or for intellectual gain so all of these things start to interface very closely with with a modern stem college i think so that to us it became a very natural move and we actually have we're having a conference in january which is why does philosophy does philosophy need science and does science need philosophy and what i i had no idea how many people work in this field so there's a couple of very very famous biologists i know who have a strong interest in this and they've published papers about this and they're coming to the conference so it it was one of those things that at first I kind of thought, this is a strange idea. Then as soon as you, I started to think about it and talk to people, it became an 
incredibly obvious, at least for us, to do. Just when this. you when you talked about the question of that conference you just mentioned, that was that was a thought that was running through my mind. Was okay. I can see the benefit of this for the scientists to have philosophers there helping them grapple with these big problems. But does it really help the philosophers to be there working alongside the biologists? Apparently, it does because it. So one of the one of the people coming. So there's a there's some incredible things that philosophers are doing in biology where you start to ask people why did you ask the question of the data like that so you end up with very i think for the as far as i understood this and if a philosopher watches this and tells me i'm insane i won't i won't take offense but i think it becomes very interesting because a philosopher can ask a, a biologist why did you ask that question of this data and then you can look at the you can then rationalize asking a question differently but in this case you see if you get a different answer so you actually have an experimental system where philosophy has potentially an outcome that will, will enable you to to see what difference it makes how you ask a question for instance as a very simple take on it Mm -hmm. Okay. And, and actually, there are actually cancer biologists working in this area, looking at how you look at, at the growth of, of a cancer cell. How how should you look at that? Sure, sure. I mean, as a biologist yourself, is this something you wish you would have had whenever you were doing your PhD? Or yes. So I actually had. So what's really telling is that. So in, in France and Italy, for example, you still take philosophy in high school. You don't take philosophy in high school in the UK. And I had a. Early on in my career, I had a fantastic French postdoc. And we did we made great progress on this project. We published some great papers. And he essentially said to me, I think the answer's right, but the question's probably wrong. And I was like, I don't even know what you mean. And he explained it to me. And so this is a simple thing. Like the way we framed the question, then we tested the system, gave us an answer. But the way we framed the question was based upon how we've been trained to ask the question rather than to uh, rather because we in a way that we've been trained to think in a way that we could probably answer it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But then his point was we wouldn't know how to ask re-ask the question if we hadn't asked the wrong question to start with. So I was sort of like, OK, this is we got a grant out of it. So, you know, to me, I saw this return on investment of stepping back and thinking about how you did something but also why you did something which to me was some was a, an approach i'd never been taught and that is something that we hear researchers say very often is that it's very easy to get in the silos and not have those nuanced approaches and angles to the questions that you are asking or not even be aware of the questions that you aren't asking yeah i and i think because i've talked at length to some people about this some not all some aspects of the funding system don't encourage you to to think like this mm. that you you go for this positive reinforcement as a way to continue your funding so i i can get the the ethical uh, argument for including philosophy into uh, a science and technology college and also the the kind of new thinking element of it as well is there also a work readiness part of this um in terms of soft skills and helping people able to communicate um those things beyond yeah. just their stem skills yeah no i i mean the one i mentioned is one of the most obvious we have a 
PhD program in computational and data science. And so for the data scientists to be able to ex explain why and how you should, you could or should use this data, for example, uh, one of the most, an area that's, I know it sounds cliche, but AI is fraught with this about work mm -hmm. readiness. So we have someone who, one of our philosophers gave a talk about how AI is now being used in smaller medical, some smaller medical settings, rather than employing an, the, an ethics committee, you can use AI to, to try and make the ethics driven decisions, which yes, that's how wow. we all reacted. Wow. Then we, so this is about readiness. Like if you're going into this workplace, you, you will be able to guide a company to say, your employer, perhaps this is not suitable for AI because it's going to backfire on us or it's right. not going to be productive or it mm -mm. doesn't fit with human nature how we do this. Um, I do think it helps with a lot of this because you, it offers you the potential. It's not that every student has to take philosophy far from it, but an awareness around this mm -hmm. and that in some areas it will it will improve your readiness in the workplace and it can distinguish you a little bit from other people i think is mm -hmm. is 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 it it's important sure yeah especially in the field of ai as you said um mike you've also said um in an interview that i read with you recently that um your that training the next generation of scientists is your most lasting impact on science I'm wondering what advice you would give uh, on how to be a good mentor. I'll, I'll start sort of at the beginning with this. When I when I was, I was very fortunate to be very very well mentored in one of my postdocs, and one of the takeaways I had was that my mentor told me early advice that he'd received when he was failing to get his lab running very well was that someone told him stop trying to change the people you're mentoring. That's not your role. You can't change people. Stop trying to make them like you. Stop trying to make images of you. And so build a relationship with your mentees. Allow them time to grow. Be willing to invest in your mentees. You should, and with the goal of developing a, a, a professional relationship where you build to their strengths and it's what your what your judgment of of success in a mentee is and so something else i learned from the same person was if you're good at this the people you recruit will ultimately be better than you mm. that should be your goal you train them you enable them you don't try to make them lesser copies of yourself um and then you and i had I had a great moment with this in my lab at Ohio State when some of my students would would free, would freely come in and say, look, I don't know if we're going in the right direction with this project. And we discuss it as a group. Mm -hmm. And I think it's that. The, and I, the reason I gave that quote was I found it once I realized that that was my most lasting impact, it's quite, it's quite freeing, actually. Because a lot of scientists, I think, spend a lot of time thinking about the acknowledgement of their peers, where they will go with this, what it means, what their legacy is. And if you realize, once you realize that you've trained a lot of people and you see them being successful and more successful than you and doing well, you realize that's great. That's a great legacy. Hmm. And so 
I think it's it's trusting people, holding them accountable. We it's interesting you ask. We had a discussion, we had a meeting about something trying to help people with this just last week. It's making sure that you know what each other's expectations are as a mentor and a mentee. Because often when you see problems, it's because no one ever really established what you what it's easy for the mentor to say, well, it should be obvious what I expect from you. But if you don't help the mentee with that, then the mentee by by return should be able to say, well, this is what I expect from you. Mm-hmm. And communicate what works for them in terms of management yeah. and, and coaching yeah, and yeah. Hmm. And I know you, you just mentioned uh, an element of academic life, which is competition and reputation and status, which is a lot of the reason why these relationships are often taken advantage of whenever you have this power imbalance. Um, what else do you think might be contributing to people falling short of these um, standards that you've laid out in terms of how to be a good mentor? There's a lot of pressure on the individual as a faculty member. Particularly, I think, on as a, if they're a tenure track faculty member on the route to, to tenure, it's all a lot of it's about you and what you achieve and what you do, and it it's it's a, it's stressful, it's difficult, it it's got barriers and hurdles in the way, and so people can become frustrated if they feel that the people that they have in their lab are slowing them down or aren't helping them to achieve their goals. And I think that can lead to very fraught relationships. And also, if you look in, when you talked about things we keep reading about, in some settings, it's it's very financial. So in some settings where a faculty member, a lot of their salary is dependent on grants. So in some medical schools, it can be 70, 80% of your salary. And if you feel your people aren't performing and delivering, and mm. then it, then it's going to impact your your income, your family, your career. So I think there's a lot of there's a lot of stress in that situation, and a lot of potential blame that people like to put around. People don't respond well in those situations. It's not a time that's easy to look in the mirror and say, "Well, it's all my fault." That's not. It's much <laughs> easier to say, "I." I got un you hear this a lot. I got really unlucky with the graduate students I recruited. Interesting. And it sounds like you might say, well, maybe you got a great batch. It's just your responsibility to bring that out in them. Yeah, well, not all graduate students are created equal. So um if you're a mentor, your goal is to find out what they can and can't do to and what what their strengths are. So it's it's the it's interesting because in leadership training there's a lot of emphasis which i i'm fully behind on identifying people's strengths and building on them mm. rather than dwelling on people's weaknesses and i think a lot of mentors like to dwell on their students and their postdocs weaknesses mm. and in some cases what i also found and i learned this from a friend of mine at ohio state if the it's also important you know your students' weaknesses. And if some of those weaknesses mean this is not the right job for them, that's actually responsibility of a mentor is to talk to them and help them find something that is better suited for them. Hmm. And that's not, and the thing is that there's also a culture that 
in some cases that's seen as a failure of the mentor which i don't agree with as a mentor your job is to help your students and your postdocs find a, the outcome that fits that what they desire and what they're good at and what will, they will find fulfilling and if that means i mean i once he told me this i had the experience where i talked to a student about this that it would probably be best for her to leave my lab with a master's and when she was crying she said don't i'm i'm crying with relief and happiness because this is what i actually wanted but i didn't really think of because she'd been made made to feel if she wanted this she was a failure also mm. so i think there's elements of that culture that you can't just think about the mentors mentoring is your success it's their success this might be a silly question but have you ever been offered mentor training in your career as a higher education leader i didn't i'm trying to think it's a good question we had when i started out um at ohio state i was very fortunate i had a fantastic chair who was a good He's British, so it was good, harsh, old-school mentoring in the way that he kept me straight on things and helped me through, and then I had other... So I had mentors, but then I realized I'd been fortunate. I'd had... Because I talked to other colleagues who hadn't had good mentors, mm. either in their postdocs or in other points. So then um, me and another colleague, we started a... Uh, doctoral training program at Ohio State that was funded by NIH. And as we developed that, we required, we we required that the men the mentors were trained through some of the national mentoring programs. And the the mentors were great, especially the starting faculty. It took a burden off of them to be helped with this, to be given guidance, mm. to be helped. So you know they they would go for training and then we would pair them with an experienced mentor. And they would be able to come and say, look, I've got these two students. This is how they're going. And you could help develop them as mentors. So we did do that hmm. quite extensively. Hmm. It sounds like you were able to do that because you yourself had good mentors throughout your career. Yeah, I was fortunate. And, yeah. Luck and then the I saw that I, me and the, my, co my colleague, she had also had good mentors and we strongly believed in it. And because the train the great thing with this training program is it's all gauged on the success of the students not the faculty so you do everything you can to help the students succeed and the faculty's buy into this is that they get fellowships from it for their students so you have a nice it's a nice arrangement the way that the NIH have set that up because it hmm. it's everybody benefits from it i want to switch gears just slightly um and ask you about um national funding for science and technology. And I'm sure you're aware that US government funding is about to hit an, a 25 year low next year. And as a member of a number of scientific societies, uh, a member of the National Science Foundation, Federal Advisory Committee for Biological Sciences, a fellow of the American Academy of Microbiology and the American Association for the Advancement of Science. Are you concerned about the US's position as a science superpower now? Um, so it's, it's a, it's a very interesting and difficult question. I, I'm not concerned right now. I'm concerned about 
what the trend means. I mean, I started in the US 20, 23 years ago when funding wasn't good, but we had ways to find funding and everybody told me it went in cycles, which it did. Um, so the things I, so I tell you what I think is the positives. So on the, on the Federal Advisory Council, so we get to meet with the people at NSF, the director and others and talk about the, and discuss the directions. I think some of the directions are really positive. So there's a, there's a the director I really like, Ponch, he's got re, he's got really good intention intentionality in what he's doing with NSF. Mm -hmm. Um and so major initiatives are funded. What I like is that there's still a bulk it, it's what's key for him is that there's still a discovery based aspect. So I, I would, I would worry about funding if what was there was all going into, into preordained funding initiatives. But when mm -hmm. you have a, the, 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 the discovery driven science still happening, I think that's mm -hmm. great. What I also like that's being done is that there's a really good, and I hope I think it's starting to pay off this notion of spreading the wealth a little bit. So a lot of efforts to get to get federal funding out to more students in more places rather than just in certain big research center points. And that will benefit everybody. And I think that's I like that. Um I think that the reason that some of the things that concern me is that the is that it's not just the funding's low, potentially low, it's that the cost of science has gone up so much. Mm. So this is probably not just a 25-year low because if you look right now at the, the recent agreement uh, with graduate students in the UC system, mm -hmm. you can literally have less people per grant dollar working on a project. Uh, Post-pandemic, equipment costs have gone up chemical costs have gone up a lot of costs have gone up and that's added a lot a lot of burden to this um and there's also where the money goes because there's been a tendency i think as when funding is high for universities some in, in certain disciplines to move more of the salary burden onto grants and away from university funds so it I think it's what the real buying power is of the money that's left. That, and I know that through through NSF, we're now discussing this because that because, for example, just with the cost of graduate students, the variability and the cost of living mm -hmm. has changed so much that mm. the science superpower term depends on having those big hubs of powerful research. You can't do this all with spreading a little bit around everywhere right and so the reason i'm not so pessimistic as you might this might should make me feel is that i was in the uk when there were huge cuts and everybody left it's why i left after my phd a lot of people left hmm. we're not at that point where the government because that's taken a long time to rebuild in the uk after that in the late 80s the huge cuts we're not at that point. 
Mm-hmm. And in the U.S., there's a much larger private sector as well that presumably is stepping in to to fill some of these gaps. We are just talking about U.S. government funding, um, and that's probably a bit healthier than it is in other competing countries, let's say, science competitor yeah. countries. Um, is there also not a concern, though, in terms of making sure that you've got a, a strong pipeline of scientific talent coming up that could be impacted by this? Yeah, and this is where I think that the, there's a lot of noise in this conversation that needs to be addressed because you have people saying things like, we make we, we generate too many PhD students anyway. Do we? I don't know. Um, we generate too many to put them all in a faculty position, but that's not the goal. Hmm. And I think it's it's important to come back to this. When we had this NIH training program, for graduate students and I are very explicit the goal is not to generate academics it's to build the biomedical workforce so that you have people ready to go to startups or to big pharma or to not 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 non-profits to or to government positions so i think that there's that kind of anecdotal notion that we have too many people that's that's, I don't think it's true. Mm. I think that's harming funding because you hear this often. What are we going to do with all these PhD students? You know, one of the classics, and this we face this, we heard this from faculty, for example, what does someone do with a PhD in philosophy? And if you look around companies, um, government agencies, all sorts of positions, lots of people have a PhD in philosophy and mm. they've done very, very very well out of it hmm. <laughs> so i think that part of the narrative is is making people unnecessarily comfortable about cutting funding and i guess that goes back to your other point as well about um being good mentors and leaders and showing students the the career opportunities that exist for them uh with a, a degree or a master's degree whatever it is that it, yeah. it's not always about going into academia where, yes, it probably is true that the number of available positions is dwindling or positions yeah. that will actually pay you a, a living wage. Yeah, I mean, and this is not new. It's kind of a joke with, so if you go to a meeting and there's a bunch of you with a large lab, my lab is very, very small now, but I used to have a large lab, you'll sit around at a meeting and you'll all have the same anecdote that that you've talked to some of your students and you ask them if you're doing career development, you're trying to help them find out what they want to do. The first thing they say is, I don't know what I want to do, but I don't want to be you. <laughs> and that's not you. That's, that's <laughs> just the truth. They see this job and very few of them want it. Mm. And they, there are different ways that they find jobs. There are different things. There's different need for highly trained, highly educated people who can then bring new technology to fruition, who can... So if you look, nobody worries about this so much in Southern California or in Boston, I don't think, because it's where all the startup hubs are. People feed into that. I was a postdoc in Switzerland for a while, and the big farmers in Basel were just taking undergraduate and graduate and PhD students from the universities as to... to to keep on feeding their workforce it was mm. it was a normal practice mm. and I, I say that because um 
I remember when there were the big cuts in the UK, the director of what then was ICI, the huge corporation, said, if these cuts continue, our workforce will suffer and we'll have to move our research out of the UK. I think people have got to be cognizant of that as well, that if you want to keep research growth moving in companies so that they can innovate, they can be... Pro and so I say this because Ponch, the, the NSF director, He's very conscious of technology that was left on the table by the US that wasn't pursued. Health technology he or um I think it's the five it's the 5G technology okay. that was developed overseas ultimately, even though it originated in the US. Yeah, and it is I, I guess it is universities just getting comfortable with that uh porosity of uh their talent investing in that talent, uh, investing in having a PhD, go through the entire process of getting a PhD and then eventually leaving the institution and going to the private sector. Yeah, but I think that it's, it was funny that nobody thought about that in Switzerland hmm. because the pharma, Swiss, Swiss science at that point was incredibly well-funded in large part because of the huge tax revenues from the Swiss pharma companies. So it was a mutually beneficial mm. arrangement. Mike, thank you so much for your time today. It's been really interesting speaking to you. And I think we've covered a lot of interesting ground today. I, thank you for asking me to do this, sir. I've really enjoyed it. You're listening to a Times Higher Education podcast.